plan to audit the Biden administration and the aid sent to Ukraine when they take control of the House in January. According to Fox News, the administration is now rushing to track down $20 billion it's given to the war-torn country following Russia's invasion in February. It's been reported that the administration has only inspected about 10 percent of the 22,000 weapons the U.S. has sent to Ukraine. Senator Rand Paul introduced an amendment to install an inspector general to oversee the spending on Ukraine, but it failed to garner enough support from both Democrats and fellow Republicans. On the House side, Republicans have been vocal about their opposition to approving more funding for Ukraine, something I expect will come up uh, pretty quickly in this new Congress when they're seated. Um, that's a lot of money that we're not maybe sure all of how it's being spent. Uh, you know, the weapons we're not keeping track of. And we know there's this long history in other conflicts. Think of all the, the weapons that eventually ended up in the hands of ISIS or other groups like ISIS. You know, when you're just wholesale shipping them to other countries, because the people who are our allies, they can be our, our, our allies one minute and then not our allies the next. We were allies where we were helping sort of, we were sort of on the same side of Osama bin Laden, right, back decades ago. And then we see how that turned out. So I, I think that's a very good criticism. Uh, you, you know, we, even, if, even if right now we want, you know, in our, in, with all our heart for Ukraine to repel this invasion, for the invasion to end, for the war to end, um, we, we cannot necessarily see the consequences of having exported so many guns and, and other things to, you know, a war-torn, to a conflict-type region of the world. I mean, it was a very lonely place in the media, February, March, April, May, June, July of last year, saying, hey— where is all this money going? Where are all these weapons going? You know, what is the national interest here? What is the end game for Ukraine? You know, we would ask all of these things um, and be called a Putin stooge, you know, and I'm sure the Democrats are getting wiping off, you know, dusting off all of their, you know, these are Putin apologists talking mm -hmm. points about Republicans who are asking, where did our 20 billion dollars go? Where did it go? And it's just so crazy to me, Robbie. Once again, you're seeing that the the, the left the Democrats have become the pro-war party and the Republicans are now the ones who are sort of standing up, you know, a little mealy mouth, but they're getting there and saying, wait a minute, hold on. Like, is this really something we want to be invested in? Is this really where we want to be putting our efforts and our energies? Do we really owe Ukraine a blank check to be fighting? Of course, they're on the right side of this war, but is that what we're supposed to be doing and to what end and for how long? It's just amazing how Trump scrambled the categories of American political life. No, absolutely. And, and on foreign policy, it was starting to he came along at the right moment. It was that was starting to scramble itself. I mean, really, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the uh, end of end of the Bush years and then through the Obama years, you know, you had you had people on on both sides. You had very liberal, progressive anti-war Democrats or an area where the anti-war faction has often found itself. And then increasingly, you also had these anti-intervention Republicans like Ron Paul and Rand Paul, um, et cetera, uh, who actually did harken back to a, a long history of, of uh, non-intervention or, or opposition to, to foreign entanglements in the Republican Party. Actually, if you think about, a lot about our wars over the 20th century, uh, many of them were, were launched or, or fought or expanded 
demanded by democratic presidents. And you might argue some of those wars were necessary. I'm not saying World War II or you know, whatever, it, it was a war we needed to involve. Not, or I'm not saying it's not a war we shouldn't have involved ourselves in, but a lot of our wars were actually uh, fought by democratic kind of internationalist Woodrow Wilson type, uh, type, type figures or Lyndon Johnson or et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. It was not really until um, the Bush, the George W. Bush takeover post, uh, in post-9-11, the consensus scrambling that neoconservatism became very ascendant and really only just for, for 10 years. Now, almost all of the anti-war uh, ideology is in the Republican camp. Um, it's it's very interesting to see the the anti-war segment within the parties themselves. There might be very liberal people who who are against this, but they are not represented politically very much now. I and mean, we've talked a lot on the show about it, but it was such a clear moment when that you know that very mild letter put forth by the the Dem progressive Democratic Congress people saying things I totally agree with. I absolutely agree with everything in that letter, and then they were forced to re retract it because the Democratic Party. You know, is so busy giving um, you know giving awards to Zelensky or having him appear at award shows or I don't know having um, <laughs> having celebrities give their awards to Zelensky. <laughs> hold on, yeah, hold on I, to my I, Oscar I, for me until you win the war. That kind of thing. And for the side that claims to be on the side of the working class, I mean, I've spoken to so many working class Americans who don't understand why we're giving all of this money away when we have so many struggles and problems here at home that could benefit from this kind of infusion of cash. Um, you know, it's 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 really, really atrocious. Um, and, and the idea that, you know, OK, fine, let's say we've decided that this is a worthy cause, um, that we shouldn't then have the right to say, um, okay, President Zelensky, it's time to find a way to negotiate your way out of this, that we don't have a right, having been the major funders of this, to demand some kind of peaceful negotiation. Um, I find that also to be, and that's something you hear a lot. You know, you hear that from Ukrainians, you hear it from uh, Ukraine's advocates, and you hear it from Ukraine's allies here domestically. You don't have a right to say, it's like, well, it's our money. So we do have a right to say, we do have a right to, to, to lay down conditions. And I think that's true of Ukraine. I think that's true of Israel, which now is struggling with a, a new far-right government. You know, when we are giving aid, when, when hardworking Americans are contributing to another country, that gives them a right to have a say about what is happening with that money, at least. Well, and no one will be honest with the American people about what we're doing here. The, the White House, the Biden administration, should just, it could just honestly say, look, we're funding this because we believe that Russia is a serious geopolitical adversary. Vladimir Putin is an enemy. He is bad. We want him to, to lose uh, power, lose favor, and we're going to continue to fund this opposition to him because it's an important uh, geopolitical goal of ours. But that's not what they're saying. They don't say that. They say, no, we're standing up for human rights and it's important to intervene and help people who are struggling, etc., which doesn't, I think, just for exactly the reason you outlined, is not persuasive to the American people because many of the American people are suffering. Many of them need help. And there are people suffering uh, all over the globe. There are people worse off. And we've supported, we've been on you know, every side of every conflict. And so it's not, uh, it's not persuasive. The humanitarian element of it is not persuasive. Uh, and, and there are always abuses on both sides of wars. So you would really, I think you'd really need to make the case that 
no, this is, a, this is for our own security because Russia is a threat to it. And if somebody else is fighting them, good for them, and we're just going to contribute the money and we're actually getting off easy because we didn't have to send troops. That would be actually honest, but they won't say it. I think they won't say it because they don't believe it. They know that yeah. it's not true. I mean, there's just, it's impossible. How can you look at Russia, Russia's economy today, you know, and say this this place, this country present this petro state presents some kind of, you know, existential threat to the United mm. States. It's obviously farcical. They're in it for, you know, uh, oh, virtue signaling think, reasons. No, so I agree with you, but I think they do think that. I think that is their mm. actual motivation here. They're just, they don't think it's persuasive, so they're not going to say it. <laughs> right, right. They, they, they believe it, but they don't think they can convince anybody else. Yep, <laughs> yep. All right, we got to go. We'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Former President Donald Trump is receiving major backlash for a dinner he had with Kanye West and far-right activist and white nationalist Nick Fuentes on Sunday. Trump tried to blame the rapper, who now goes by Ye, saying Ye agreed to have a solo dinner at Mar-a-Lago, but three other people unexpectedly showed up, including Fuentes. Trump's team went into full damage control mode, claiming he had no idea who Fuentes was when he arrived and describing the dinner as quick and uneventful. Despite their best efforts, the dinner received lots of backlash, including from former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who said the dinner was, quote, an awful lack of judgment that makes Donald Trump, quote, an untenable general election candidate for the Republican Party in 2024. The White House also chimed in. Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates released a statement saying, quote, bigotry, hate and anti-Semitism have absolutely no place in America, including at Mar-a-Lago. Joining us now to discuss the controversy is former special assistant to President Biden and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa, and deputy editor of Off the Press and host of Can't Cancel Rob Smith, Rob Smith. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So, Rob, let's start with you. First of all, thank you for your service, sir. Um, what were your first thoughts when you heard that Trump had broken bread with Nick Fuentes? Well, my first thoughts was that it was it's sort of an outrageous uh, lack of judgment, I would think, uh, uh, on the part of Trump and anybody that's surrounding him. Uh, you have to understand, you know, I've been personally targeted by Fuentes myself for being black and gay and all of these other things that people like him, you know, hate. And, you know, Nick Fuentes is what they pretend Republicans are. He is an anti-Semite. He is a white nationalist. He is a disgusting racist and he is a homophobic. He is homophobic. He is literally the worst of the worst. OK, there's no defending that. So the the Trump team and Trump himself, um, he can try to distance himself from it. Um, He can sort of try to pretend as if he didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But I would I would say that anybody that's really on the Trump 2024 team right now, hardcore, would have to think serious about whether or not they want to spend the next two years defending um, these unforced errors and the serious, serious lack of judgment uh, when it comes to having a, a, a dinner with Nick Fuentes. Mm. Yeah. What did you make of this, Michael? It just feels um, a little like deja vu, like we've seen this movie before. Sadly, I think like the cake is already baked. The people who uh, support Trump, who love Trump, his loyal loyal base. That's this isn't going to change much for them. I think it's another example, sort of, um, you know, the associations that he keeps and um, 
the things that he does and says and he doesn't take responsibility for, it's going to be up to Republicans to sort of decide whether they want to follow him down another rabbit hole. Um, we've heard criticisms of him before. Again, all of this doesn't feel very new. It's going to be really whether he can um, win, win an election. And he's proven that in 2017 statewide elections, 18, he lost the House. In 2020, he lost the White House and the Senate. Uh, he lost all the races he supported in Georgia this year, the primary races. And the people who were associated with him lost their races in a very winnable year for Republicans, despite economic pain. Um, well, that's not entirely true. Republicans are just going to have to make that decision whether they want to keep following somebody who's just going to keep losing them elections. Because the, the cake's are already baked in terms of who he associates himself with. Well, ahead, I would, I'd like to hop in here and say, you know, it, it's a, a very good talking point from Democrats to say that everybody that he was associated with lost. Um, that's not necessarily true. There are a lot of people um, that had his backing that that won their races. Like I'm thinking about, you know, people like, um, you know, Maria Alvaro Salazar here in Miami. I'm thinking about like, you know, Ana Paulina Luna in Florida 13. Um, I'm thinking about people like George Santos in Long Island. So the idea and the narrative that everybody that was backed by Trump lost their races is a false idea. Um, Sadly, think, those, those were just I, not the races they needed excuse to me, Excuse me. Um, I think it really does speak to candidate quality, right? And so those were very strong candidates um, that were not harmed by their association with this. I And I also have to disagree. What makes this situation different is this. And I'm somebody that was sort of on the uh, the, the coalition in 2020, the uh, log have Republicans that what they call a Trump pride coalition, right? And so I actually stumped for the candidate at the time, he's candidate for president. So the difference between now and then is that uh, between 2018 and 2020, there were a lot of things that were sort of like made up and elevated by the left. There were tweets that were sort of mis, uh, misquoted. There were quotes from Trump himself that were misquoted. You had these sort of very fine people on both sides smear, which is one of the biggest smears and biggest lies to ever come from the left. So that stuff, was, you know, you can sort of um, explain that away because that stuff was lies. Um, this stuff with Fuentes, this is different because you cannot explain that away. And there's all sorts of stuff online, on the internet, all over the place that is going to show the average viewer who may not know who this person is exactly who this is. So I do believe that this is a major problem for Trump in a way that sort of a lot of the, the stuff that came up before was not. So, Rod, let me ask you this, though, because I'm with you. Like, I think that there was a lot of, like, needless smearing that was not accurate. But what would yeah. you say to someone who said, look, we've been telling you that this is who he's the guy who's going to have dinner at some point with Nick Fuentes all along. This vindicates, you know, our suspicions all along, even though he denied it and denied it and denied it. What's what's the co correct response? Well, to I that? would say, number one, first of all, I'm not speaking for Trump or anybody on the campaign at this point. But first of all, I would say. Um, people were people that would say I was telling you that he would have dinner with somebody like Nick Fuentes all along did not know who Nick Fuentes was before five days ago, first of all. <laughs> um, and, and second of all, like I said before, the argument can be made with all of the onslaught of stuff that was coming before, the very fine people smear, um, the lie that he said all Mexicans that were coming from the border were rapists and, and, and drug addicts and whatever. So these were lies, right? So these things were different. And so if I were to get that argument I would almost say that this was kind of the boy who cried wolf. You guys have spent the last seven years at this point lying to the American public, uh, mis 
misquoting, misrepresenting all of these different things so that now when there actually is something that you have to stand on about the type of person that he is breaking bread with, the people that you have lied mm. to for the past seven years are not listening to you. OK, mm. so this is what I would say to these people. Well, while President Biden was out in Nantucket on Saturday, he emphasized that no one on his team is having conversations about running again in 2024. Now, while he's hinted at re-election, there's been no formal announcement. While President Trump has already announced his bid for re-election, he could, however, face a primary challenger in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Elon Musk, Twitter's newest owner, recently endorsed DeSantis, saying he'd vote for him for president in 2024. So, Michael, we've been talking a lot about the Elon Musk Twitter takeover, obviously, uh, for these last few days and weeks. Uh, it's kind of endlessly entertaining. But I, I can sense a, a real, um, not, well, not just sense, I'm reading this real fear that a lot of uh, Democrats or mainstream media or progressive media people have about uh, Twitter uh, now explicitly in the hands of someone who, who very much, you know, who endorsed Republicans in the midterms, who has endorsed now a specific Republican, uh, Ron DeSantis. How do you think the media is going to handle that if DeSantis ends up being, uh, as I think he's likely to be, a, a serious uh, challenger for president. Uh, it's that, you know, that dynamic. And is, is there, there going to be a pining for Donald Trump as like a beatable candidate versus a DeSantis who everyone expects to be a more formidable opponent? No, I, I think we have to like take a step back first. I remember Rick Perry being the next best thing since sliced bread. I remember Scott Walker being the next coming. Hillary Clinton came off a 30-point re-election victory in 2006. That did not make her the nominee. Uh, we need to give Governor DeSantis a chance to have the, the tires kicked a little bit by the media, by Republican voters. Um, he doesn't just have to go through a Republican primary. He has to go through a Republican primary with Donald Trump, uh, where we have to see how he's going to withstand the constant assault on his character, on himself, day in and day out, the way a lot of other Republicans had to deal. And then we need to see what kind of candidate he is coming out of that. Um, but you don't you're not going to he's not going to run to the center in a primary. He's already very far right. Uh he has a lot of questions to answer for in terms of culture wars that he's tried to start in Florida. Um, he's by no means a moderate Republican that Democrats should be scared of. Um, in fact, I, you know, I just I, I don't really think that he's much of a threat at all. When you look at independent mm. voters and what they voted for, um, independent voters in, in Michigan and uh, Pennsylvania, they don't look anything like voters in Florida. Mm. Last Michael, word, Rob. Let me ask you something. Or, well, no, I would ahead. say, me well, I mean, Oh, sorry. Well, I would, you know, ask him, like, what is the definition of far right? Again, this just seems to be one of these terms and these talking points that come from the left that means absolutely nothing. Uh, right, I've lived in Florida for the past two and a half years since the pandemic happened. Ron DeSantis is a very, Ron DeSantis, excuse me, is a very uh, moderate to center right Republican. And I speak with um, independent and Democrat leaning voters in Florida who like what he has done for the state. So define this far right thing. 
Um, I, I don't think you can. I think that this is somebody that should he decide to run, Ron DeSantis will be a very formidable um, general election opponent. And the reason that he will be is because he actually has a record to stand on. This is not somebody that um, needlessly engages in culture wars. The Parental Rights and Education Act was something that people were asking for. It's something that most people agree with, even here in Florida, uh, a lot of other places as well. So I don't agree with this characterization of him being far right. Uh, to Democrats, anybody would with an R um, by their name that is not Liz Cheney is far right. So we can kind of kill that talking point right now. Democrats <laughs> are very anxious for him to jump in the ring and to have the, the tires kicked by uh, Donald Trump and the media. We're very excited for it. And uh, we are we would be embracing running against a record like that in uh, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, I would look forward to a Biden-DeSantis race. I think... Well. Uh, It'll be very Michael, interesting. Michael, let me just ask you, you know the president well, you know his wife. <clears throat> Do you believe him when he says that no one on his team is having conversations about 2024 yet? Should we believe that that's true? <laughs> I believe he's running. He's he's running. And um, I wouldn't, I, at this point, I wouldn't, uh, the question for me would be, why shouldn't he? Mm -hmm. um, he's been one of the most productive, uh, accomplished presidents in um modern American history, when you're looking at first terms, he has, he's accomplished enough basically to last, to last him two terms. Um, he has every reason to be running and I expect that he will. Yeah. I've always said he would run for reelection. That would be totally what no one seeks power yeah. and then just randomly gives it up. So I would absolutely yeah. expect you know to see that showdown. Uh, and then we'll see about DeSantis as a potential general election candidate. At least uh, maybe he has a better choice of dinner guests. He might have that going for him <laughs> over Trump. Uh, Michael, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. guys. More rising right after this. On January 3rd, when the next Congress will assemble, Republicans are expected to have 222 seats in the House, compared to an estimated 213 seats for Democrats. A new Republican House Speaker will need to be elected, and the GOP only has four Republican votes to spare. Current House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has already announced his bid for Speaker, but faces pushback from five members of his own party, including Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who said McCarthy lacks credibility across every spectrum of the GOP and is not a capable fighting force for the American people. Representatives Ralph Norman of South Carolina and Andy Biggs of Arizona are two other hard no's. Bob Good of Virginia and Matt Rosendale of Montana have also voiced dissent but could still be persuaded. Joining us now to discuss is host of Straight Shot No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro. Welcome, Teslin. Thank you so much. Always glad to be here. Great to have you. So now their demands are not very specific from, from what I can tell. And uh, I, I frankly don't quite agree that, uh, that Kevin McCarthy is not, I don't know, an effective advocate of conservative positions. I think he's done a good job, better job than Mitch McConnell, actually, of keeping like all aspects of the conservative movement um, within the fold. But it is interesting to see, uh, you know, Repub some Republicans actually demanding something of their of this would be speaker and trying to get some kind of concessions. Uh, something I understand is maybe a little less common or has been in the past, not so common on the Democratic side. 
Yeah, it's not common at all. Let's not beat around the bush. You know, I'm an independent, so I can't, it's, it doesn't matter what I think, you know, who should lead uh, the Democrat or the Republican Party, but let's just call, you know, balls and strikes. Once again, uh, the Republican Party is showing that at least, you know, somebody has the fortitude to speak up and, and challenge and say, you know, let's not just hand it over uh, to just whoever they select and let's put some demands on the table, unlike uh, the Democrat Party and, and particularly uh, progressives. Let's just call it what it is. You know, last year uh, they were very clear in starting a pack called Team Blue, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, to basically unseat uh, progressives and to challenge progressives that were going against moderate seats. And now the same progressive leaders that all of the progressives gave your last $2 to, your last $5 crying in the stands, you know, singing as if they were the next coming of Christ, they are sitting back and saying absolutely nothing. This is the time to see who is the real leadership on the left. So shout out to Hakeem Jeffries for, let me use the words of Rick Ross, he is the biggest boss thus far. Uh, he is absolutely going for the leadership and nobody is saying anything at all and they will not say anything at all. That includes Bernard uh, and everybody that rides with Bernard. The progressives are showing once again a lack of leadership and I know they'll say that, oh, you know, we're being strategic. But what I have come to realize that to them, strategic means being silent. Yeah, so, you know, we've all been alluding to this, but there was a moment two years ago uh, that was described as the force of vote moment where Democrats were in the same position Republicans are in now, where because the majority was so narrow and because you need 218 votes to confirm a speaker, the handful of squad members, the four to eight of them, depending on how you count, um, have the power to actually hold up confirming Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House in exchange for any number of concessions, including committee appointments. We saw people like, um, Katie Porter, who's been a very effective advocate for kind of populist economic policies, uh, you know, taxes on the rich, et cetera, get pushed out of the Financial Services Committee. They could have demanded all kinds of things, including a floor vote on Medicare for All, which was something that the progressives were talking about at the time. Um, and they simply did not. They simply did not. And now, when I have interviewed various progressives uh, like Rokana about whether or not they look back and, and have regrets or why it is that Kim Jeffries is now in a position where he isn't being challenged by any progressives for leadership. They're given the same excuse they gave two years ago, which is that just nobody's ready. We haven't prepared. We haven't had anybody positioning themselves in this way. And, and I wonder what you make of that. Uh, at a certain point, you know, should progressives be looking to these people as leaders? At what point does it seem like almost like a, a planned ineptitude versus um, making genuine mistakes? Because they've had a lot of time to plan at this point. Yeah, let's just be clear. This is a con game. I'll go ahead and say it. It's a con mm. game. Come line. Progressives love talking about Democrats and moderates and, oh, you Democrats, oh, you neoliberals, you don't get it. You're just uh, blinded. No, so are you progressives. It is a con game. They have showed you time and time again that it's been all about funneling your money up and selling you a dream. My problem is not that uh, that I don't understand strategy. I, I run a, a strategic communications firm. I get strategy. I understand that things take time. My problem is, Bree, that they went out and lied to these people. They went out and lied to the progressive movement. They lied to folks who were poor, middle class, working class, and promised them a dream. I cannot stand a voluntary, a, a voluntary lie, whether that's Biden who volunteered to pass, uh, to have the back of black people that nobody asked him to do, whether it is the progressives, Bernard Sanders, and everybody else to have people crying in the stands, giving their last $2, whether it is on the Trump side of selling people on hopes and dreams of some magical wall that we that will be paid for by Mexico. 
I cannot stand the volunteer, the volunteer lie. These people know exactly what they're doing. They're worse than the moderates because you're mm -hmm. taking the last two dollars from the poor and working class, knowing damn well that once you get in the office, you're going to flip the script. And that's the problem that I have. Why not run on the truth? Why not run on the fact that saying, hey, we're going to get in. It's going to take us time. But they did not do that. They sold a hope and dream and a con game. And that is why I have such an issue uh, with the progressive movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not? That that is the question. What what are they thinking? Is it is it are they insincere when they say they're committed to these things? Is it a it's all about just raising money and then they don't particularly care about supporting a cause? Or would they would say they're more they're being more strategic than you, right? That they have some master plan that you're not privy to, or that there's they have a long term plan, or there's just or they just can't defeat, or, or they the, don't know what yeah. right they or they're they they've given up, up hope Pelosi, that they yeah. that it can work. Yeah, crap. That's much, but it's no master plan. <laughs> this, this is no rubbing of the hands. Oh, I got some master plan. The, the plan is the con game. Bottom line. This is why I keep trying to tell people it is important that you get involved on the local and the state level. As far as Congress is over with, it's a wrap. Get local and state leadership. When I say local, I'm talking about city commissioners that have executive power to make the decisions, you know, that can make effective change right now in, in your city. Get on board with folks who are running for state house, a state rep, state senate that you have a little bit more access to. Because as far as Congress is concerned, it's it, I think we're just we're behind the ball and it's too it's too far, too far gone to right the ship. Um, unless you have that local leadership that is putting pressure on those folks in Congress that say either you do or else or or we're going to make sure that you lose nothing will ever change. The only thing that a politician's fear fear is the ability to lose their seat, period. So as long as progressives continue to keep giving their last $2 and $5, I said it last year, Brie, on your podcast, as long as they can continue to give your last $2 and $5, you, you're going to continue to get played, period. We can see it. Where's Bernard? Paging Bernard. Hello, Bernard, are you around? Why is Bernard not saying anything? At the end of the day, they're going to sit there, they're going to shut up and shout out to Hakeem Jeffries for showing them exactly how it's done. And that does not mean that I'm supporting him and his policies. What it means is he is literally taking this seat and every last one of them are saying nothing at all. They're going to sit there, they're going to take it, and they're going to like it. Yeah, and some people have said that he, they're afraid that he's actually going to be worse than Nancy Pelosi in some ways. He's very explicit about um, his commitments, for example, to kind of unlimited funding for Israel. He's referred to Israel as the sixth borough of New York. I, I mean, he's, he's, as you mentioned, Teslin, backed the super PAC that was designed to target progressives and make sure that they don't um, win elections. I mean, he is, you, you, you know, the final boss of progressives in a lot of ways in terms of the kind of pol politician you want to defeat. And for him to be kind of cruising into this leadership position without any public pushback, it seems, from the people who are supposed to be the left vanguard is perhaps not surprising, but it is disappointing to do those in the left. Thank you so much for joining us today, Teslin. We'll have more rising right after this. Five major media outlets, including The New York Times and The Guardian, are calling for the charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to be dropped. In a letter to the U.S. government, the media organizations call the indictment a dangerous precedent that threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. They go on to say that publishing is not a crime, something we've said on the show multiple times, and obtaining and disclosing sensitive information when necessary in the, is in the public interest. That's a core part of the daily work of journalists. Criminalizing this work makes democracy significantly weaker. 
Julian Assange was arrested in 2019 under the Espionage Act following the publication of classified material that detailed corruption, diplomatic scandals, and spying on an international scale. Friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, responded to the push for the charges against Assange to be dropped, tweeting, quote, good to see the media outlets who profited from his scoops finally defending him. Robbie, why do you think see. it took so long? I mean, this is unequivocally good yeah. news. I, I shouldn't yeah. immediately poop on it. No. But I mean, there is this question, like, what is with this timing? Yeah, I, I don't know, but uh, better late than never, I yeah. guess. Uh, they are absolutely right to say what we've been saying for years on the show. The previous hosts were saying it before we were. Uh, it is not a crime to reveal to the information, uh, to reveal to the public information you got that is in the public interest about the lies the government told that contradicts what they said. That is not a crime. That is journalism. That is what the New York Times does. That is what the Washington Post does on a good day. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it's, it's what all journalists should aspire to do. And Julian Assange is not a criminal. He is a hero. And he has been under, he has suffered uh, horrible, a horrible cost for what he did. He has been, you know, he was trapped in that embassy for years uh, under not thrilling conditions right. and is now actually being held uh, in uh, prison in Britain under terrible conditions. Uh, it's horribly impacted his health. Uh, his, he's his in family bad life. state. Yeah, we've talked, uh, we've talked to his, his brother on the show before. Um, it's just, it's awful. Uh, and the U.S. the U.S. government could easily put an end to this. They could just stop this indictment or they could issue a, a uh, you know, a, a blanket pardon or commutate or whatever, to any of those things would be fine. They, but they should stop trying to imprison him. They should let him be a free man, and they should thank him for the public service he performed. Yeah, I mean, Glenn has been making this point really consistently about the New York Times and these other papers profiting off of benefiting from these kinds of yeah. stories. And, you know, part of the, the tension that's always existed is this kind of New York Times rule where there are so many uh, publications that could be implicated by uh, Assange um, going down under the uh, Espionage Act. And it is curious. I wonder whether or not some of the conversations we've been having in a foreign policy context about authoritarianism overseas has continued to heighten the contradictions as America wants to demonstrate that it's much more free than other countries like Russia and China. Is the fact of how it's treated Julian Assange kind of um, an inconvenient uh, uh, mm -hmm. truth that it's having to contend with more and more? The Obama administration said it wanted to be the most transparent administration in history and then prosecuted a record number of whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you can't just talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. I think there's a certain, in, in terms of the media, I think there's a certain amount of, um, maybe this is vibes only, I don't know, but <laughs> contempt for a Julian Assange type figure who is who is an independent figure, who, who was not operating yeah, or working for an establishment, like establishment media yeah. property, yeah. was doing his, his own thing. Uh, th there's a certain amount of protecting the prestige of an institution like the Times and the Post, et cetera. So when they do it, it's okay. When so it, It's good. Not only is it okay, it's yeah. good. It should be celebrated. When someone, you know, outside the bubble does it, it's like, well, yeah. it's, you know, that's yeah. and I also provocative. Think that, look, that's contrarian. That's weird. You know, oh, I don't know. For sure. For sure. And, and as much as we talk about, and I think especially conservatives talk about cancel culture, it's worth noting that some of the allegations, you know, I think that part of what allowed so many people to walk away from Assange, including journalists who sort of know better, was this idea that he's a bad guy anyway. And some of the Me Too allegations mm -hmm. that had surfaced and that were ultimately discredited 
stuck in people's minds such that I remember there was an interview done with AOC in the beginning, I think January of 2021 at The Intercept, where she was asked uh, about her support of Julian Assange. The Intercept was obviously an outlet that has been really all on these, on these issues for a long time, founded by Glenn Greenwald. And her answer kind of dodged and alluded to the fact that, oh, I don't know that much about him, but it seems like he's unsavory, basically alluding to those kinds of allegations. And I I think a lot of people fell into that trap, not saying that they were bad people for having fallen into the trap, but you really do hope at least our Congress members, our leftist Congress members in particular, um, keep an eye on the ball a little more closely. That has happened so many times now that people tainted with Me Too stuff, which can run... The gamut. A, the gamut, all the way from very serious accusations Correct. to you made someone feel uncomfortable once in a social situation, Correct. and then there's no, and it could be a million years, it could have been yesterday, it could have been a million years ago. There could be plenty of verification. There could be no verification whatsoever. The person, but it's just the the whiff of it. Yeah, especially for the can left. Doom you. Because, it's crazy. Because the left cares. Like the left yeah. actually does want to protect the interests of women. They do. They do want to do the right thing. So when an Alex Morris situation comes along, that was the the right. gay uh, candidate in Massachusetts who had an accusation that went absolutely nowhere, but it ruined his presidential ca- uh, his congressional campaign. You saw this happen with Shahid Buttar, who was one of the only people to ever challenge Nancy Pelosi in her district. Um, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. reported to be a Pelosi-backed campaign to to elevate the accusations against him, which were not. They were the kind of interpersonal types of accusations, nowhere near like the kind of Weinstein-type accusations. Um, And I think it it ends up hurting the left more because they immediately bend the knee. Scott Stringer in uh, the New York mayoral race had Mm -hmm. to drop out and was abandoned by AOC and the other leftists. I was just reading about—so I I just found him again. I couldn't recall his name. The author Juno Diaz, Mm -hmm. uh, who who was um, canceled. Uh, It was a Pulitzer Prize where he was part of the Pulitzer Prize board. And he was canceled for a, a Me Too accusation, and you know, he lost all these kind of professional gigs, all these. And then, and he so it was investigated by the Pulitzer Committee, and they found so they like they hired a firm to invest, like you would do if it was a workplace mm-hmm. thing, and they found there was no validity whatsoever to the accusations. Yeah. They had, the, the, the accusation was like that he kissed someone on a cheek in yeah. like a social situation. It, it, absolutely collapsed. That's crazy stuff. Yeah, I think it also had a lot to do with people decided that the content of his stories were misogynistic. And there was, I remember at the time, there was this argument about whether or not it was so autobiographical that he was basically telling on himself or whether or not you should just read the book as fiction it's and separate it apart from him and yeah. shit. Is it right to yeah. blame, you know, attribute all of those yeah. personality traits to him? Yeah, it's, we're we're still working through, I think, as a society, right. how we want to treat. I never, these I've never uh, ascribed to George R. R. Martin a desire to burn <laughs> people to death with dragon fire. But although well, maybe we should interview him and find out, <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. So yeah, we we've come a long way from the subject of the the discussion now. Oh, but yeah, uh, Julian but it's not, I, well, I think it's a, this is a topic that interests us both. Yeah, the, the, over, a little bit of the overboard. Yeah, uh, me too stuff. But uh, but anyway, yeah, that really did. Uh, I, I think that did have an effect on the coverage from mainstream institutions. Um, and then also the fact that, uh, undeniable, that he was so vocally against Hillary Clinton and would not kind of fall in line to a, to a well, we have, to, we have to stop saying things that could be embarrassing to Democrats right. because we can't get Trump. 100%. And he did not take that view. And that put him 100% at odds with where the mainstream media was headed. Yeah, relatable uh, from my perspective. (laughs) But uh, good news all around uh, for people who love freedom of the press. And we will have more rising for you after this. And 
October, at least 10 residents of the Brooklyn neighborhood, Little Pakistan, were appointed to the 44th Assembly District's County Committee, a body of neighborhood representatives across the borough who vote on the party's rules and its nominees for special elections. Their appointments were pushed through by Brooklyn's Democratic Party organization without the appointee's knowledge. The new slate of ghost appointees was pushed through at an assembly meeting in October in an effort to prevent the nomination of those who were viewed as at odds with Democratic Party leadership. Not only were these residents appointed without their knowledge, but their signatures were forged on proxy forms that transferred their voting powers over to people who align with the party establishment. A spokesperson for the Brooklyn Democratic Party declined to comment on these ghost members to the city who first broke the story. Joining us now to discuss is City Hall reporter for the city, Yoav Gonin. Welcome, Yoav. How you doing? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So tell us more about this. How was this scheme pulled off, the forging of signatures, et cetera? How were these people even selected? Were they, are they even participants in the, in the party at all? Um, we, we spoke to a, a number who said um, they, they really didn't know much about the, the Brooklyn Democratic Party. Uh, most of them were, as, as far as we knew, registered Democrats. So they said, um, but, but they said their involvement with politics was essentially uh, voting in, in elections. So um, most of the one, most of the people we spoke to who were appointed without their knowledge really had no idea how they ended up on this list. Um, and a number of them even said that uh, they were aware of, of people who, who were appointed who had moved out of the state uh, months ago, as far back as June. So the, the goal here seems to be um, getting around people who might not align with what the Democratic Party establishment is supporting. Are there specific issues that are contentious and that they, the establishment has been struggling to get consensus with that would have motivated them to take this kind of action? What's the state of play looking like in the, looking like in the Brooklyn Democratic Party right now? Well, uh, uh, a lot, it, there's actually quite a range of issues, and, and, and it starts with how to kind of uh, how, to, how to run the party, how, how transparent to be. Uh, how much involvement to include that, you know, technically there's, there's more than 4,000 uh, officials in the party and, and um, the opposition argues that they want a greater role. They, they, they don't want uh, decisions about uh, uh, what the party is going to do to come from the top. They, they want uh, a, a more say for these uh, county committee members, they're called. Um, but it also comes to, who, uh, you know, the party plays a role in nominating officials for, for state office, and they also play a role in nominating people for judgeships. And a lot of times those are in dispute be between more moderates and, and progressives. So um, it's a host of issues they're arguing about, and, and clearly, um, you, you know, the people in power are willing to go to great lengths uh, to keep that power. I mean, it's a little it's a little confusing because on, on one hand, it would seem to be a good thing to have people from communities that aren't usually represented um, across the, the district, the, across the borough, on these kinds of committees. It's really the issue is the fact of them not being aware and, and able to actually show up and vote in their own interests or their community's interests and instead having their votes appropriated. Has there been any feedback at all from the Democratic Party about that aspect of it, which seems a lot more pernicious? Right, and and I think they they would they have pushed back on this idea a little bit previously, and um, 
And, and I think there's actually two things going on here. I really do think there is a legit, legitimate attempt by the uh, Pakistani-American community to, to get more involved in politics. They realize that um, although these are low-level roles in the party, that's, that's your first uh, foothold into having a greater say in what happens. So I think there is a, a, a legitimate um, movement happening there, and, but it appears that someone who was aligned with party leadership, and at this point we don't know exactly who it is yet, somebody sought to capitalize on that movement and basically sneak uh, you know, at least 10 names in there that, that uh, didn't belong because they, they weren't informed. Um, so it, it, it does seem like they're kind of capitalizing you know, underhandedly on, on a legitimate movement. Mm. Was this uh, so, so? What's going to happen now? Are the people responsible going to face? Uh, is this is criminal issues, etc.? Um, the, the, it seems to me the only area where it might verge into criminality is uh, when signatures are forged. Um, in, in these ten cases, we actually don't know of, of, of any forgery as of yet. Uh, we reported, me and my colleague George Joseph, earlier this year of at least a handful of forgeries um, kind of involved in, in the same thing, the, the selection of these uh, low-level party officials. Uh, but the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office has said they're taking a look at some of these issues. Um, we don't know that it's a full-blown investigation as of yet, but it has caught the attention of the Brooklyn DA. And in, in your story, you know, at, at least uh, one person, a former executive director of the Brooklyn D Democratic Party, says that everyone, uh, this has been going on for decades. This isn't some uh, new development. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to break the story, how you came to be aware of it? Uh, well, um, we, we've been paying close attention to, to the, the party this year. There were a number of incidents in recent years that, that kind of caught our attention and it didn't seem like the, the party was getting enough like persistent attention from from reporters and and they were kind of doing underhanded tactics out in the open because nobody was paying close attention so we've developed some sources uh, you know um, in large part people who are opposed to, to what the party is doing and, and and the ways that they're maintaining power and in this case, uh, we basically got a tip that, that something strange was going on. Uh, we got a list of everyone who was appointed, and we went uh, to the neighborhood uh, where they all lived, and, and we knocked on doors, and, and that's how we found people. Mm. Fascinating story, and we appreciate you coming here to talk about all of your coverage of it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. The layoffs have begun at CNN due to a cost-cutting strategy by parent company Warner Brothers Discovery. CNN CEO Chris Licht said in a memo today that it is a difficult time for everyone. He added, our people are at the heart and soul of this organization. It is incredibly hard to say goodbye to any one member of the CNN team, much less many. I recently described this process as a gut punch because I know that's how it feels mm. for all of us. But say goodbye, they will, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't know how, many, how much those corporate there. platitudes are going to go over <laughs> with the people who actually have lost their jobs. The question is, is this going to be like the pattern we've seen 
across many industries where to save money, they cut costs, but it doesn't necessarily inert to the benefit of the, the, the company in terms of the product that they're actually putting out there. Is the issue a staffing issue or is it that CNN isn't yeah. making content that people want to watch? Or is it an issue like Twitter is maybe demonstrating, which you can fire massive amounts of people and still run the company. It's what I think yeah, they're well, demonstrating. But that story hasn't quite been concluded That's, yet. All right, we won't, we won't talk. Sorry, we, I, sorry to make us talk about Twitter for the 40th time today. Yeah. We'll stick with CNN. Uh, yeah, it, obviously their issue was was programming, it was content based, it was the viewpoints of the uh, of the of the journalists. And I think um, I saw Don Lemon on one of the late shows uh, very recently, maybe as recently as last night. I'm saying that I, I didn't watch it live. Obviously, I saw a clip later. Him saying <laughs> which is the that, problem, which is what CNN <laughs> right, is doing right, right now. Well, watch it live, <laughs> he, and he was. The question was, is CNN flailing because its uh, personalities are deemed or judged to be viewed to be too liberal? And Don Lemon says, I don't think we're too liberal. We're just we're just journalists. We're just doing our job. And right, you right, you rolled your eyes at that, which is audiences are rolling their eyes at that. People have moved away. Look, Don Lemon, I, I there was a time when I was a what I, I will admit to have being a fan. He, he, I love his... I'm not, not a fan. His, his New Year's Eve specials. It's choice. It's peak mm-hmm. television uh, when he and Anderson Cooper have a couple of cocktails and ring in the New Year. But it is so narrow-minded to think that he that is anything is... but a screaming liberal. Yeah. So much so that he catches the ire of leftists constantly, probably as much as he is uh, irritating conservatives across the board. I don't understand how these people aren't self-aware. I know that I'm a leftist. I know before I say something what the reaction is going to be in front of different audiences and sometimes calibrate accordingly. The fact that he has such blind li- blindness about his own political position and how he's coming off in the world is exactly, exactly what's wrong with not just CNN, but a lot of these uh, media institutions. Yeah, definitely. Uh, they did hire, uh, or not hire, they did ed- ed- promote someone um, who I think is a pretty good Person, their White House correspondent Phil Mattingly is well, so he's going to be their main White mm. House correspondent. Now he's a pretty good journalist. Okay. There are good journalists at CNN. I enjoy a lot of their content. Yeah. I think their uh, some of their election content was very good. I really, actually, I was going to yeah. say midterm night. I found myself coming back yeah. to CNN over and over. I, I think they're they get it more than MSNBC does yeah. actually right now well, for certain. Spe- speaking of speaking MSNBC. Of. <laughs> Meanwhile, over at MSNBC, Joy Ann Reid had this to say about white nationalist Nick Fuentes' meeting with former President. Donald Trump. You know, some people come out and say, well, that's horrible, you know, and say he's a terrible person. They don't want to talk about Trump. They say, but Trump's not an anti-Semite. They, they carve out of that. Trump's not a bad guy. He shouldn't have had him at the table. But the problem is the rest of what Fuentes just said. Uh, to me, that doesn't sound any different than fundamentally what the party platform is. They don't believe in elections. They don't necessarily like the idea of democracy. Mike Lee said democracy is a bad idea. They don't like the idea of women controlling their bodies. Mm-hmm. They clearly wouldn't mind having a dictator because they don't think that elections matter. They think they should just decide who the president of the United States is. They hate the culture. They're angry that the culture is too friendly to LGBTQ people. I, I just I, I see a very small degree of difference between what he believes and what they believe. I just now all of the things that she listed were sure things that you know Republicans support and I mean obviously her characterizations are what they are, but those are fine critiques to make of the Republican Party. That's not why people are mad at Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes is a Holocaust denying, inward saying, white supremacist. Even that, that even like conservatives who might dance around words like white supremacists and racist right. sometimes are openly disavowing and pushing themselves away from because they know that there's no 
there, there's nothing to defend there people at all. People Fuentes' ilk believe that Jewish people are inferior because of, like, the structure of their bones. <laughs> they're like, they're doing not, physiognomy. It's different. <laughs> than, that's not, like, Trump does not believe that. You can make whatever criticisms you want. That is not a mainstream view in the Republican Party. Sorry. There, there is yeah. huge difference between Trump yeah. and the Republican Party and what Nick Fuentes represents, which is why he's being roundly criticized. Right. And per, you know, Republican figure after Republican figure saying you should not have, uh, you should not break bread with Nick Fuentes, who doesn't, re- right, he represents genuinely racist, genuinely Holocaust-denying people at the very fringe of, of political thought. There's not a lot of them. This is not a movement that has any strength or relevance. It yeah. is solely one I mean, person who has successfully attached himself to Kanye West. Well done. I mean, look, I do think that there, you can't say that the movement ha- has absolutely no energy. Charlottesville wasn't that long ago. Nick Fuentes was there and associating with those groups. I mean, that's that's part of why people are so angry about him having sat down with, with President Trump. So you can make your claim. And I understand why Democrats and politicians would want to try to tie and make more of the relationship between Nick Fuentes and Trump because it looks bad. And I think that there is definitely a criticism that says, Donald Trump, what is going on with you and your handlers that you would end up in this kind of situation? And why is it that the friends of your friends, why is it that the people you're hanging out with, even if your intention was only to meet with with Kanye West, why are they surrounded by people who are so nefarious uh, and who have such um, abhorrent views? Fine, make that argument. But to pretend that there's no space between Nick Fuentes and your average Republican, I think... It undermines the mm-hmm. credibility of the interlocutor, and it undermines the credibility of Democrats who do try to make everybody into the worst version of some kind of like MAGA Republican well, Joy stereotype. Joy Reid's the worst version of this because she she truly doesn't. I, I believe that she doesn't understand the difference. Yeah, she between doesn't have Nick any Fuentes intellectual and, curiosity about what's going no. on on the right, and I, I, I don't know. I feel like. I don't expect your average person to be following conservative news outlets and watching Fox mm-hmm. and reading Breitbart and exposing yourself to what's going on in the world, but it very much is her job. And it, it, well, and she was—you know who that other guest is? That's Kurt Bardella, who came from the right, was became like a never Trump person, and is now just a fully absorbed uh, kind of you know MSNBC figure. But he came from like he was a publicist at Breitbart. Oh, really? So that's what his job <laughs> was. Insane. So he understands. Oh, and he's also the guy, by the way, he's the um, Lauren Boebert OnlyFans, you know, number one subscriber, oh, oh. if you remember that. <laughs> I uh... <forgot> about that. <laughs> okay, so let me see if I got this straight. MSNBC is basically the number one rehabilitation mechanism for conservatives who had all of the views that she just articulated that she said we're so reprehensible, right? Election denying, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, doesn't respect LGBT people, all of the, the whole nine yards. And she's sitting there with someone who was a proud member of that party, apparently until recently, or maybe still is a, a Republican, but isn't a, a MAGA Republican, whatever that means, and has the audacity to, <laughs> to say that it's other people are the problem and not her and her own networks mm-hmm. um, it, having the effect of taking person after person um, Bush's former comswoman, Nicole Wallace, and making them the stars of their own network. Yep. As a leftist, this is what's really frustrating to me because with all of the conversation about liberal bias in media, which totally exists, the thing that I think people have appetite for, which is genuine populism on the right and the left, is completely excluded. And leftists, she will she will sit down with a person like that long before she sits down with anybody who ever voted for Bernie Sanders. Wow, he did too. I'm just, I was Googling Kurt Bardell to make sure I had that origin right. I did have it right. He, he did an op-ed for USA Today. I work for Republicans and Breitbart. Trump made me see the light. And then 
a few weeks later. I used to work at Breitbart. Here's why I think they fired. Like he got a, he did a couple of these, not just one. <laughs> God, it's the uh, look. Yeah. I don't like to use the word grift. It's thrown around a little bit too much. So yeah. let me let me choose a different word. The power structure validates a very narrow span of political worldview. And it's not about it being left or right. It's this status quo establishment enshrining view of the world, where it's all about respecting norms. Everything has to go around as clockwork. We just have to maintain the system that benefits people like these and the people who go on these shows and excludes the majority of Americans from the alleged American dream. And that's what we're seeing here. And you can be a former Republican or even former person associated with a very conservative news website and then change your views or, or sure. find Trump odious and what I, I, that describes me to some degree. Sure. Um, and it describes people like Alyssa Farah Griffin, who I, I think is doing a pretty good job yeah. um, uh, trying to educate her co-hosts at The View and at CNN. And they're so dismissive about, of her, though. Uh, yeah, she, she, but she does a good job, I think, of, of explaining uh, it, she's been inside the administration, and she can speak for. Then uh, there are they exist a lot of Republicans who do want to move on from Trump for both practical and and moral and constitutional for a bunch of reasons. And uh, she she does that well without going the full this right. full route of sit, the, sitting there and pretending that there's right. no difference between Nick I, Clinton I agree. and Donald Trump. But what, what this thing I just occurred to me the, what's wrong with what um, Joy and Reed is doing here? What it exposes is that she doesn't actually care all of those things that she described as being Republican priorities that she attributed to Nick Fuentes, and so that's why people are mad at him. Those are still the priorities of all of the Never Trump Republicans, but she doesn't care. What the, the real issue right. is the vibes. The they vibes. don't like the vibes that Trump has. They don't like the disrespect for decorum and the rules. And it's all optics. It's so superficial. And to be so self-righteous about something that isn't even substantive, it's, it's gross. It's really disgusting. And if, if these institutions, if these media organizations want to understand why so many people are turning it off and only watching it in clip form on YouTube the next day, there's a hint. I should look in the mirror. More rising right after this. But first, a European Union official told Elon Musk on Wednesday that Twitter needs to beef up its anti-hate speech and misinformation measures, with potential consequences spanning, fi uh, spanning to fines to a total ban in EU countries. The EU's digital chief, Thierry Breton, said during a virtual meeting with Musk yesterday that Twitter has, quote, huge work ahead in achieving compliance with the EU's Digital Services Act, which regulates content on the Internet and goes into effect next year. It seems, however, that Twitter will not be leaving the App Store here in the U.S. anytime soon. Chief Twitch shared video from Apple's headquarters yesterday with the message, quote, good conversation, among other things. We resolved the misunderstanding about Twitter potentially being removed from the App Store. Tim was clear that Apple never considered doing so, which is something we said on the show yesterday, that that's Correct. not actually going to happen. <laughs> Correct. So now we have confirmation that that was not actually going to happen. Great. <laughs> Look, is it, is it too cynical to believe that Elon Musk floated this trying to gin up sympathy for people who are kind of perhaps overly eager to see him as the victim of free speech mm -hmm. attacks, and he kind of stole valor, stole sympathy for something that was never actually going to happen? Um, it, yeah, possibly. And ended up seeing like he won something that was never really contested. Look, I, I'm glad Tim Cook cleared this up. Seems like he was the bigger man about it. Invited him down, talked about it, said that's not going to happen. Great. All I mean, look, the, the post, um, the tweet that you just read off, it was accompanied by, I think, a picture of them walking around Apple grounds. It seems like he got 
yeah. the royal treatment. And, and I don't know, I left me with a little bit of an icky feeling. Like, mm -hmm. you know, these are powerful people playing powerful games on the internet. You know, Elon Musk can complain and get an escorted personal tour from another one of the richest men in the world around Apple headquarters. And it seems like almost like a gentleman's agreement, the kinds of which, you know, I criticized in my radar yesterday. Should these decisions, should our affinities or criticisms of these players be built on who is nice to Elon Musk? Or do we need to be having a more robust conversation about what the actual rules and terms of engagement are going to be like on this app. Well, but speaking of an icky feeling, we should not gloss over that declaration from the European Union uh, regulator. I mean, this is, as much as we complain about how the U.S. government has treated social media companies or has forced them, you know, various directions. And they're pulled in both directions because many Democratic uh, forces or people are yelling at them for allowing too much misinformation, allowing too much Russian influence, et cetera, allowing too much COVID misinformation. They're getting that from Democrats. And then Republicans are, are yelling at them for not allowing enough of all those things. And so they're, they're caught. They have no idea how to handle both of those things, if, you know, however you feel about Mark Zuckerberg, he's very clearly been in a, a no-win position mm. for appeasing mm. um, the forces on both sides. All that said, our, our regulators, our politicians have much less power because of the First Amendment mm -hmm. and because of Section 230 to directly uh, force these companies. They can lightly pressure them. I think there's, I think they have been pressuring them in a way that, to my mind, does come close to violating the First Amendment in some ways. But, it, but we are lucky to have the protections of the First Amendment, unlike in Europe, Europe where... Hate speech is and can be banned in many countries. Yeah. There are people who get arrested and ticketed for sh uh, publishing, for sharing rap lyrics on yeah. Facebook. That's happened a number of times in Britain. In yeah. Britain, yeah. A, a, a modern, fairly free country, we, uh, we saw it what happens happened. because they don't have the First Amendment. Yeah, we saw what happened around um, the Queen's funeral procession and mm -hmm. people who are being arrested for holding up blank signs and shouting things at the, at the caravan. It's a very different place. In countries like Germany, I think Europe, generally speaking, has a different relationship with speech because of World War II and the Holocaust, and there are much stronger rules against certain kind of speech. Now, that has always been the case to a certain degree. I know that there's a new law that's going into effect. But, you know, who among us hasn't been reported by a troll to uh, get to Germany Twitter and, yes, and gotten one of yes, announcements Yes, we all get saying. these announcements. Yeah. I, and I'll, I'll see people complain about, like, well, what is Twitter doing? Why does Twitter? That's that's European law. That's not Twitter's yeah, fault. Yeah. Uh, German, there's a German law that uh, that you, you, you'll be notified when the German authorities are told that your speech has been reported to them. Right. And then typically... Right. So Nothing people who want to get you kicked it. off an app will often yeah. you know, use, try to use that as a, as a way to threaten and coerce you from saying whatever it is that you're saying. But this is very concerning. Misinformation being allowed on Twitter. So, so Elon Musk just declared that there's going to be no more enforcement of COVID misinformation, which, uh, you know, is terrifying everyone. Everyone's freaking out about it. But there's been so, there's so much disagreement even among health officials for for various COVID measures and for obvi obviously there's some stuff that is like very, very wrong that everyone agrees is wrong. But the efficacy of certain uh, mitigation efforts of sure. vaccines, what exactly they, they do, how much they help, how much they're preventing um, uh, cases or versus sure. severe death versus what ages are they appropriate for, what ages are or, or the, where the balance is in favor of taking it. These are all policy questions that are well within the realm of debate and actually should have been from the beginning. And so so it's very it's, it's I think it's fine. It makes perfect sense to take the thumb off the scale a little bit and say no people can freely discuss these things. But uh, that's the very sort of thing that Europe, uh, the European officials are worried about. Sure. I mean, it's just worth noting that 
just as the as Elon characterized him as himself as being targeted um, by Apple, which being taken off the App Store, which did not happen. There's a way that this is being framed by some as Elon Musk is being targeted and you know Twitter's being targeted because of Elon in Europe, but. Europe has always had that they don't have the First Amendment, they don't have these free speech rules and whatever we think about it, that's the way it is there. And all of these apps are going to have to adhere to those those kinds of standards. So we can we can disagree with it from our American mm-hmm. perspective. But this isn't this isn't one of these. We're suppressing Elon because he believes in speech and we don't issues. This is Europe well, just doesn't believe in those kinds of the speech protections. I mean, European officials don't believe in that. Right. They put in sure. laws that don't. I mean, and, and voters, I, you know, but, yeah, we, well, we have we have our I'm sure some voters lobby in for them would. and me. Yeah. Would uh, would appreciate our our kind of regime. Musk and his Twitter takeover were the target of substantial criticism at the New York Times Dealbook Summit, where President Zelensky himself slammed the new CEO for tweets he made this fall about a potential peace plan between Russia and Ukraine. Speaking to Musk directly, if you want to understand what Russia has done here, come to Ukraine. You will see this with your own eyes, Zelensky said. After that, you will tell us how to end this war, who started and when we can end it. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said she misspoke earlier this year when she said there was no basis under which the U.S. government could investigate Musk's purchase of the social media app, adding that it is appropriate for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. to, quote, take a look. And I mean, I don't know. Zelensky is a very, you know, popular figure among European Union type people. So, you know, you're saying it's not personal or specific to Elon, which I, I take the broader point that, yes, the, the, the regime, the law is just is not what we have here in the United States. So they might they would take anyone moving in this direction. Increasingly, they want all that all the tech companies to move in the direction of policing more misinformation. But I could see them being specifically peeved with Elon Given Zelensky's mad at Elon for the things he said about the conflict, but those are two different things, aren't well, they? Zelensky's mad at Elon Musk because Elon Musk did the crime of suggesting of saying something peace. totally reasonable. <laughs> right? Elon was right, was right about that one, in my humble opinion, at least. And Zelensky's response was completely not substantive. It was the yeah. equivalent of, "Well, you're not standing in my shoes. Come here and take a look, and then you'll change your mind." Well, I mean, I think. The principles upon which Elon is basing his desire for peace don't have anything to do with disregarding the horrors of war. Quite to the contrary, it's because of the horrors of war and the suffering that comes from extending the crisis that Elon is agitating. We're all allowed to have opinions about the conflict being bad. Right. Our tax dollars are supporting the conflict. So we're allowed to like this is this is the tyranny of expertise where, well, unless you have a, you know, a a master's in in. international relations. You don't have any right to say what, no, no, we all have the right to say that we need to bring this conflict to an end. And Elon had one plan. If you have a better plan, sure, let's hear it. But we're not just going to continue. We're not just going to fund this forever without any kind of negotiations. Yeah, I'm I'm team Elon on that one. Mm. All right. Looking forward to your radar, Brianna. That'll be up next. Stay with us. Across the country, there is a shortage of amoxicillin, an antibiotic used for a range of bacterial infections, mostly in children. The FDA recognized the issue last month. It only affects the liquid version of the drug, which is a household staple for treating ear infections and strep in kids. Hmm. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the shortage is expected to last several months. They suggest doctors prescribe other versions of the drug, like the tablets or the capsules, and then crush them up into food for younger kids to ingest. Joining us now to discuss this is the president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest and former FDA Associate Commissioner Peter Pitts. Peter Pitts, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Important topic. 
Yes, very much so. I'm seeing a lot of uh, concern from parents of young kids for how to deal with this, not being able to get it. Um, what is the, the reason uh, for the shortage? Uh, it's very quite. It's quite simple. Uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredient for amoxicillin is in short supply, and 80% of that supply comes from China. So the story really is how to secure our supply lines for pharmaceutical products. So it really is an issue of kind of healthcare, national security, and how can we, how can we move beyond single sourcing to countries that can cause shortages. And is the reason China ha has not been able to? Manufacturer ship us enough of that ingredient. Is that is that pandemic related? Is that you know, you know what's going on there? Is it malicious, deliberate? What's going on? Well, right now it's because I believe of, of COVID. Obviously, they've had numerous lockdowns. It's in the news these days with their they have a yeah. failed zero COVID policy. So when people can't get to their jobs, uh, you can't produce product, and you can't produce product that causes shortages. Of course, there's also the the other issue of politics, and you know, if China wanted to, it really could severely impact our ability to access important healthcare products. We, we saw it happen with baby formula. This is just as insidious. Yeah, I was going to bring up the baby formula example precisely because in that instance, there were some red flags that people said, well, you should have been able to predict, predict this, right? Not only had there been the whistleblower who flagged, um, you know, violations at the factory prior to it closing down, it is not an unknown known <laughs> that, uh, that, our, that we're not manufacturing this stuff at home. We're now two years plus into a pandemic, and it seems very frustrating to keep coming up with the, uh, against these, these issues. We saw that with the monkeypox vaccine as well. It seems to be an administrative choice not to pay to maintain our stores of the vaccine rather than an inability to manufacture these things at home or have the kind of you know regulatory upkeep that would prevent disasters like what happened at the Abbott Labs and the baby formula from having happened. It, are there parallels to what's going on here? Should, should, should we have anticipated this and done more to manufacture more amoxicillin, liquid amoxicillin here at home or at least in, in, in countries that are closer and perhaps uh, with, with whom we have a less politically fraught relationship. Well, you're right. You know, these are known knowns. And also, just in the recent past, we had a significant shortage of um, contrast agents. So people couldn't get MRIs and CT scans because uh, those agents are made almost exclusively in Shanghai. And when Shanghai locked down again for COVID, we had a significant shortage here at home. We know this. You know, the, the bad news is when the FDA was asked you know, which products are most at risk because of outsourcing from China, the answer was they didn't know. And, mm -hmm. that's, not, and that's not acceptable. You know, similarly with baby formula, the update needs to have a better handle on supply chain issues, which really hasn't been a focus of the FDA to date, but, but it's got to be. Drug shortages and supply chain are linked at the hip. You can't have one without the other. And it's not just a question of uh, China. It's a question of being smart and making sure that we can, we can, have more sourcing in countries that are friendlier to us, whether that's Canada uh, or places like Israel, the United Arab Emirates, the, Ab the Abraham Accord countries are friend sourcing opportunities. It doesn't have to be on our home shores. The problem with programs like those called for by Senator Rubio to make these products here domestically is it sounds good. It's a good political talking point, but financially it doesn't make sense. The reason mm. that these products are not manufactured here at home is that there's no margin. You can produce them overseas less expensively, but that doesn't mean exclusively using China as our backyard. We've got to move these facilities to countries that are more friendly to us, that are more responsible. And again, it's like anything else. You need to make sure that your supply source is spread out across, 
across a couple of countries, having all your eggs in one basket, and that basket being China, simply isn't a smart move. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. We, yeah, we, we talk a, a lot about that on the show, how to you know counteract being too reliant on offshored labor or production or manufacturing. I, I think there's a, a desire among some policymakers here, Marco Rubio being one of them, to do more domestic manufacturing. But I, I, my guess is that's going to take that would take so much changing of various regulations, labor laws, et cetera, that I don't imagine there's the appetite to do here. And so there needs to be some kind of middle ground along the lines of just what you had laid out just there. And also, you know, the first step here is to identify which products are most at risk. It doesn't seem to me to be a, a rocket science move to ask mm -hmm. the FDA and other relevant government agencies to identify you know, the 20 top products that are most at risk because they're being manufactured overseas. And if we don't do that, we're not going to fix the problem. Because if you can't measure it, then it doesn't count. We have to know where to look so we can start fixing the problem. In the, in the short term, is, is it the case that so amoxicillin, obviously a very important drug, are, are there similar uh, related um, antibacterial um, and antibiotics that can, that can also cover the vast majority of of the kinds of illnesses, strep, et cetera, that are, that are being used for right now by amoxicillin. It, it, obviously, that may, maybe not a long-term solution because you don't want to impact the supply of that drug as well. But in the short term, are there substitutes something else? Well, the good news about amoxicillin is there doesn't seem to be shortages of the non-liquid format. Mm -hmm. you know, I remember when my kids were going through these phases, obviously, it's easier just to pour it on a spoon and put it in their mouth, it tastes like bubble gum, kids, kids love it. There are alternatives. But this is also a teaching moment to make sure that antibiotics are not inappropriately prescribed. 30% of all the antibiotics prescribed in this country are prescribed inappropriately. And that can lead to issues such as antibiotic resistance, which is an incredibly important public health issue. So as we're talking about amoxicillin, it's also a teaching moment to make sure parents understand that um, antibiotics are not, are not always the answer. Hmm. I mean, it, it does seem like this is a significant um, a national safety issue. It, it feels really odd to have so much focus go just purely to, and not to draw you into a conversation about um, kind of our military adventurism, but we have such an enormous military budget. There's obviously a lot of words that are spent uh, about how to protect the American interests um, with guns and weapons, but to have these incredible vulnerabilities that have been laid bare by the COVID crisis, I mean, what do you see uh, as coming out of this, is there any responsiveness from your perspective from the government? Is, is there an awareness that we have made ourselves vulnerable in these ways? Because I got to say, this is like the third or fourth instance of there being maybe maybe more between not having the respirators, not having the PPE during COVID, on and on and on. You know, is, are things changing from your perspective? I think that some people are beginning to become aware of it. Obviously, the people in, in my field have been aware of it for a long time. And more needs to be done. You can't deal with shortages on an ad hoc basis. And we continue to do that. And it's only going to be a matter of time before we have two or three or four shortages at the same time in different areas of medicine. And we're going to be in a very tough place. And people are going to start yelling, why haven't we done something about this sooner? Well, shame on us if we don't start mm -hmm. thinking about this right now. And again, the answer isn't making the stuff here at home. That simply isn't going to happen. It's looking for other countries to help us uh, decrease our, our reliance on places like China. And again, whether you have, you have Israel, you have the United Arab Emirates, you have places like Morocco, you have signees of the Abraham Accords, who are more than welcome to and willing to step forward to start building facilities if they know they've got a market and we are a big market. 
and we can make them know that we will buy their product, we can solve our problem. This isn't going to be solved from one day to the next. It's a long-term proposition. These factories take a long time to build. And unless we start thinking about that right now, uh, we're digging our, our own uh, grave here, not to mix metaphors. Mm. Fascinating uh, and terrifying. Thank you so much for elucidating us on those subjects. Yeah, um, um, antibiotic, uh, resistant, bacteria-resistant antibiotics was something I was t- com- probably the most alarmed about until COVID came along, mm-hmm. and then we had to worry about re- research and all those things as well. But uh, Peter Pitts, thank you for joining us. Can't thank you well, enough. My pleasure. Thanks very much. We'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us.